Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, we're back. And by the time we record this, we'll be moving through the month of May. And I can't help but think of a holiday that the United States seems to have claimed as its very own. In fact, we Americans celebrated more than the country of the holiday's origin. And unfortunately, we often confuse it with another holiday from that country. Any idea, Courtney, of the holiday I'm thinking about? Well, Aunt Carol, since it is in May, I don't have to think too hard. I think that holiday is none other than Cinco de Mayo. And you're right. Most Americans think that Cinco de Mayo is the celebration of Mexican Independence Day, but it's really not. Well, I can't stump you, my dear niece. Cinco de Mayo, which is celebrated um, on May 5th, is actually the celebration of the 1862 victory of the Mexican army over Napoleon's French forces at the Battle of Puebla, which Mexican Independence Day is not. Really, Mexican Independence Day is September 16th. Well, I hope we cleared that up for our listeners. And another thing that may come to a shock to our American listeners is that we over here in America make more out of Cinco de Mayo than Mexicans do um, in Mexico. While it's celebrated in Puebla, Mexico itself because of the battle, it's not considered a nationwide holiday with all the taco parties and uh, celebrations and fanfare that we give it here in the States. Well, you're right again, Courtney. And for some people, especially Black African Americans, celebrating Cinco de Mayo actually comes across as disingenuous because for the most part, Black African Americans don't see themselves as part of the, of Mexican history or of Cinco de Mayo. But there is a relationship to Mexico that Black African Americans overlook or even don't know about. For example, most people don't know that in 1829, the president of Mexico, President Vicente Guerrero, who was African of African descent, he actually abolished slavery in Mexico. Also, there's a long history of Afro-Mexicans and African-Americans who played a big role in Mexico's history and fights for freedom. Now get this, Mexico also has a black population and that population has been striving to be recognized in modern times. In 2015, for the first time ever, Mexico allowed its citizens to identify as quote, Afro, um, uh, Afro-Mexican or, quote, Afro-descendant on its census. Now, the result, more than 1.4 million people, that's about 1.2% of the population, said they had African ancestry. 
Today, the majority of Afro-Mexicans reside in the state of Guerrero, Oaxaca, and Veracruz, all places that were popular among escaped enslaved Africans. So Mexico's role in Black history is a big one. A big role is right in Carol, even in research for other podcasts. In our Thanksgiving podcast, when we discuss the connections between Native American tribes and African Americans, we learned about the Black Seminoles and that they fought alongside Seminole Native tribes during the Gullah and Seminole Wars, but also found themselves moving west, some by choice when they were given their freedom, but others by force due to the pres due to President Andrew Jackson Andrew Jackson's 1821 Indian Removal Act. They were free people, or at least they thought so, but when they arrived in Indian territory, they learned different. They were vulnerable to Southern slaveholders. So around July 1850, 309 Black Seminoles, which at that time made up 60 families, escaped to Mexico, where, as you mentioned, slavery was abolished in 1829. They crossed the border now by what is now Eagle Pass, Texas, settling in ne Nemesito de los Negros, a village whose name literally means birth of the Blacks. Now, for the past six generations, those 60 families have lived, worked, lived and worked in Mexico, honoring both their Mexican as well as African-American ancestry. They're known as the Los Macogos. And one big fact about them, one of their biggest holidays is Juneteenth. But Aunt Carol, these 60 families weren't the only Black African-American families who found a home in Mexico, right? That's right, Courtney. Many would be surprised, though, to learn that Mexico had its very own underground railroad that led south to freedom right across the Rio Grande River. Researchers estimate five to 10,000 people escaped from bondage to Mexico, and a historian named Maria Hammock at the University of Texas at Austin, she actually thinks the, the number could be even higher. Now, when a formerly enslaved man named Felix Haywood from Texas was interviewed in 1936, he actually scoffed at the idea of escaping to the North to find freedom. He said, all we had to do was walk, but walk South and we'd be free as soon as we crossed the Rio Grande. Now, in spite of his levity, uh, freedom across the river wasn't all that easy. It was still dangerous and much like the, under, uh, the Underground Railroad that ran north, enslaved people seeking freedom in Mexico faced a whole set of dangers as they made their way and they often needed help just like the ones going north. Now that help came in a surprising form according to a, a historian named Roseanne Baca Garza who actually came across two unique families. These were the Jacksons and the Webbers, and they lived along the Rio Grande River. Uh, white men headed both of the families, and both of their wives were Black emancipated slaves. Nathaniel Jackson and his wife Matilda, along with John Ferdinand and his wife Sylvia Hicks, another interracial couple, consistently helped those heading to Mexico to get into the country. In addition, there was a vast community of Mexican-Americans, German immigrants, Tejanos, and Black Mexicans who had already settled there, and they also enabled enslaved people uh, to escape from the South at the border. 
Now, this network of uh, Underground Railroad going south was a direct assault on the institution of slavery in America and ultimately on America's systemically racist culture that this podcast is all about. Now, Courtney, I think you have a story that relates to this business of Blacks and Black African-Americans and Africans being in Mexico. And that story is about an African prince who struck a blow to slavery when he led a slave rebellion in Mexico. Isn't that right? You are absolutely right. And Carol, it's like our own real life Black Panther, our own real life T'Challa. Now his name was Gaspar Yanga and he was born in 1545 in West Africa. And you are right, Ann Carol. Scholars do believe that he was a prince in the Gabon royal family until he was sent to Mexico as a slave to work in the Spanish sugar plantations in Veracruz, Mexico. Now, in 1570, when Yanga was 25 years old, he led a group of followers into the mountainous regions of Cordoba and established a settlement of former slaves there. And for the next four decades, Yanga and his people lived in peace with no interference by Spanish authorities. They were considered a maroon colony, which means runaway slaves of both African, Mexican, and uh, native descent would all be able to run to. Now, taking on the role as both spiritual uh, and military leader and de facto king, Gaspar and his followers created a structure of a agricultural community, which grew into smaller settlements. So it had like a capital and other little small settlements around it. And again, it was a beacon for African slaves and slaves of all nationalities in Mexico who wanted to escape Spanish slavery to join their ranks. And the settlement became known as San Lorenzo de los Negros. So St. Lorenzo of the Blacks. Now, not only was Yanga and his and his people known for their agricultural skills, they were also skilled raiders. And that's how they supplemented their communities when, you know, when they did not have the supplies like agricultural or from their livestock. So Yanga and his band would habitually disrupt supply lines along the Camino Royal. Uh, Royale, so the Royal Road between Veracruz and Mexico City, taking supplies and goods as they were needed. Now, they were also blamed for attacking locals and attacking large haciendas and kidnapping women. That was something they were also accused of. And this was something that Spanish plantation owners were not going to stand for. Not only was there a slave, a escaped slave colony in the mountains surviving and thriving, which was an affront to slavery itself, they were also attacking their supply lines. So something definitely had to be done about this African prince and his settlement of former slaves. Now, since at this time, Mexico was still under Spanish rule, slavery was still the the law of the day. And those plantation owners knew they could reach out to the Spanish viceroy to get military help to deal with Gaspar and his raiders. 
Also, this again, the biggest issue wasn't the supplies or all that other. It was a, other things going on. It was a beacon to other runaway slaves. So they were losing their free workforce. So now it was time to bring the military might of Spain, one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time, up against Prince Gaspar Yanga and his renegades. Well, Courtney, given the power and strength of Spain at that time, I can't really imagine Gaspar Yanga, Prince or otherwise, stood a chance against them. So let's take a quick break, then come back to see if victory or defeat is about to unfold. To learn more about systemic racism, or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Anxious, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. All righty, we are back. And before the break, it looked like the Spanish plantation owners were ready to do away with Yanga and his people. That's right, Aunt Carol. The plantation owners had had enough. So they called in the big guns, literally the Spanish military. Now, led by Pedro Gonzalez de Herrera, about 550 Spanish troops set out from Puebla in January and in a and now estimated 100 of those were Spanish regular soldiers and the rest were conscripts and just random adventurers. <laughs> now, however, they were all military trained fighters and they knew how to handle themselves in battle. Now, on the other side, Yanga's men, the Maroons, were a force of 100 fighters who had firearms and but they also had 400 more people with them, but they had stones, sticks bows arrows and in some articles they just had everyday like household pottery that they would just throw down from the trees well i'm telling you that doesn't sound like a lot of artillery against a military force like spain well you would be surprised when people are fighting for freedom what what the outcome is going to be but at this time yanga was up in age he was no young no longer that young 25 year old prince who struck out into the mountains but he was still a military tactician so he decided to use his troops superior knowledge of the terrain to resist the spaniards his ultimate goal was to cause them enough pain to draw them to the negotiating table. So he didn't want an all and out decimation. He just wanted to have a sit down. Okay, so this is a tactical approach. Pretty smart on his part. Exactly. Now, upon the approach of the Spanish troops, Yanka sent terms of peace via a captured a prisoner of war. He asked for a treaty akin to those that had been settled, that had settled hostilities before between indigenous tribes and Spaniards. And he proposed the creation of an area of self-rule for his people in return for tributes and promises of support. So his thing is, if you just leave us alone, we will pay you tribute and we won't cause you any problems. And you've done this before. Okay. So, hey, let's make a deal. Exactly. Now, he also promised that if the Spanish were attacked, that Yanga would also supply troops and he would return any new slaves uh, in 
returning new slaves back to the Spaniards. But the Spaniards arrogantly refused. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to come to the negotiating table. They came to fight. So fight they did. And heavy losses were on both sides. Now the Spaniards kept advancing into the Maroon settlements and they burned down homes. But the Maroons and Yangus troops went further up into the terrain, which was exactly what Yango wanted them to do. The Spaniards could not achieve a conclusive victory fighting on that turf resulting in a stalemate that lasted for years. And finally, the Spanish agreed to a parlay with Yanga. Hmm, which is basically a fancy way of saying they agreed to sit down and talk things out, which Yanga was trying to get them to do in the first place. It's what he wanted the whole time. Now, Yanga had 11 terms that that he required for peace, with the most important being the recognition of the freedom of all formerly enslaved residents prior to 1608, acknowledgement of the settlement as a legal entity which Yanga and his descendants would govern, and the prohibition of any Spanish community. Yanga, in return, promised to serve and pay tribute to the Spanish crown. After years of negotiations, finally, in 1618, the town of San Lorenzo de los Negros was officially recognized by the Spanish authorities as the first free Black settlement in the New World. So pitchforks and rocks and machetes won the day. Won the day it did. Now it will be another five decades in 1860 that Gaspar Yanga and his settlement will be brought back into the spotlight. And that would be done by none other than Vicente Riva Palacio, the grandson of none other than Afro-Mexican hero, President Vicente Guerrero, who was the president that abolished slavery. So that's kind of a cool historical bridge right there. In 1871, Yanga was designated as a national hero of Mexico with the title of first liberator of the Americas. And in 1932, the town's name was changed from San San Lorenzo de los Negros to just Yanga in commemoration of its original founder. In August 1976, a large bronze statue, which is still there to this very day, along with several other murals were erected to commemorate this African prince turned liberator. And on December 7th, 2017, the city of Yanga was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in in memory of all Afro-descendants who were brought to Mexico via the Spanish slave trade. Wow, Courtney, that was an amazing story. I actually remember seeing a documentary by Dr. Henry Louis Gates about Mexicans in Mexico who were were of African descent. And he mentioned the town of Yanga, but he certainly didn't go into as much detail as you have. So thank you for that. Now, it goes to show that a small band of determined people who seek freedom, they can really make a difference. Now, since we're talking about celebrations earlier, let's not forget that um, on August 10th, Gaspar Yanga 
there's a festival to celebrate him every year. And um, that's in Mexico as well. So August 10th, if you uh, want to celebrate something, Gaspar Yanka is somebody to celebrate. And freedom always needs to be celebrated and I'm always down for a party. So, Aunt Carol, after slavery was abolished in the United States, did Black African-Americans still seek freedom in other countries? Oh, they absolutely did, Courtney. As you well know, abolishing slavery didn't solve things for the formerly enslaved or for people living today. Americans moved quickly to install systemic racism as a way to subjugate Black African-Americans. So it's been an uphill struggle ever since for equality and equity in this country. Now, according to a writer named Kimberly Springer, quote, for generations, Black African-Americans have been leaving the U.S. and seeking freedom from segregated performance spaces, from the specter of lynching, and from being disrespected in their hometowns, especially those who uh, had served honorably in the armed forces abroad. Uh, I think some of these names will sound familiar to you. These are people who left the country, luminaries and intellectuals and artists like James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Josephine Baker. They all went to Paris. Uh, Paul Robeson, who uh, lived for a while in London and Moscow. Uh, Julian Mayfield went to Accra, Ghana and Georgetown, Guyana. Claudia Jones uh, left for London. And Yasin Bey, also known as Moss Def, uh, lived in a uh, move to Cape Town. Uh, they either immigrated by choice or were actually forcibly expelled. But their myriad reasons for leaving often included politics. All of these people had agitated for black equality in different ways, and many became expats after experiencing the inescapability of racism here in America. Uh, Paul Robeson, who fervently protested American racism as a violation of American ideals, was pushed out of the country for his speech. And of the world abroad, Robeson said, quote, in Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi, no color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. Now, more recently, after the 2016 presidential election, there was an uptick in Black African-Americans researching about and even making the move out of the United States. So many, in fact, the trend was dubbed Blacksit, which is a, a play on the term Brexit when the UK decided to exit the European Union. I even read an article that famed singer Stevie Wonder, who visits Ghana often, plans to move there permanently. Why, Carol? I guess Black African-Americans see opportunities and options of living abroad as very enticing. Yes, yes, many of them do. Some are entrepreneurs who can pursue their businesses abroad or have jobs that allow them to work digitally. So being tied to America isn't necessary. Uh, some want to experience a different worldview without the American lens. Also, some expats cite the growing violence in America and police brutality and threats to their children, political arrest, and just general animosity of the U.S. as reasons for packing their bags and getting out. Ironically, though, America is not the only place Black folks get pulled over for no reason, and violence against people of color has been documented everywhere, from Brazil to the Netherlands and Scotland and even Paris, France. In some cases, though, Black African-Americans are actually safer from violence, 
stigma, or harassment than members of their native people of color or minority groups in those countries. In other words, uh, Black African-Americans actually experience a level of privilege they don't experience, experience in the U.S. And sometimes the expats feel a little guilty about that because they are treated better than the people of color are treated in the country where they've moved. But Still, countries like Mexico, Panama, and many Central and South American countries, as well as European nations such as Portugal, have seen an influx of Black African-American expats. Even your uncle and I have been considering Panama as a retirement homestead. Oh, wow. You mean you might become an expat? How are you and others thinking about making such a move? And what steps are you taking to learn about the countries that are the most welcoming? Well, Courtney, thanks to social media, folks are finding it fairly easy to get information, connect with others thinking about expatriating, and linking up with expats once they make the big move. There are podcasts, YouTube channels, and Facebook and Instagram sites dedicated to the topic of expatriating that are specifically aimed at Black African Americans. There are even several companies doing a booming business arranging relocation tours to various countries so people can get firsthand knowledge about places they're considering as a new home. So expatriates finding life abroad means that they've escaped the systemic racism of this country, much like the enslaved people that Yanga led into the mountains of Mexico. Well, not exactly, Courtney. What many expats say is that although they escaped the crushing pressure of American-style systemic racism, they still encounter instances of prejudice, bias, stereotyping, and sometimes a little bigotry. But for the most part, they do not encounter the institutional racism that's baked into uh, uh, the American culture. They don't find that in other cultures. Now, what I mean is that they find uh, in other countries where they choose to live, that those countries rarely use their power structures to systemically put in place policies, procedures, and practices designed to disadvantage Black African Americans. And that's what has happened here in our country. Well, we all know that human nature being what it is, escaping prejudice, bias, stereotyping, and even bigotry will be hard no matter where you go. But if systemic racism is not an issue, that alone seems worth considering moving out of America. Uh, well, I agree, Courtney. We can't be responsible for people's behaviors in terms of being prejudiced or biased, but uh, we certainly would like to get away from laws and rules that actually make that okay. Now, no place on earth is perfect, but some of the expats I've read about feel that wherever they have relocated, they've been able to escape that scourge of systemic racism. They've adjusted to new cultures and customs just to be able to breathe free of America's systemic racism. Well, breathing free is a wonderful exercise within itself. But that brings this show to a close. But I think we've given our listeners more than enough reasons to celebrate Cinco de Mayo this year. We've opened their minds to moving out of the country. So as we bring the show to a close, if you miss us in between now and the next episode or want to connect with us on social media or even listen to some old podcast episodes, visit our website, www www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry that brings today's episode to a close 
We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.